I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, a podcast where culture and entertainment meet. I write about movies here at The Times, and between movies and TV, a frequent topic of conversation among my colleagues on the entertainment staff at the paper is just how tough it is for any of us to even keep up. So this show is about the stuff that we're watching and how we watch it. This week, we talk about the rise and fall of Marion Shugnight, the notorious music industry impresario who recently pleaded no contest to charges of voluntary manslaughter and could serve up to 28 years in prison. This brings an unlikely coda to life of a man who once seemed to personify the hustler-turned-executive ethos of gangster rap. So for that conversation, I was joined by Times crime reporters Marissa Gerber and James Queeley and music reporter Garrick D. Kennedy to talk about Knight and his legacy. Let's listen in. Marion Shugnight, the notorious music empresario and executive who recently pleaded no contest to voluntary manslaughter and faces 28 years in prison. Joining me to talk about the rise and fall of this notorious L.A. figure, I'm joined by... I'm James Quilly. I write about crime and police news in Southern California for the Los Angeles Times. I'm Marisa Gerber. I cover criminal courts, um, including all of Suge Knight's uh, recent court hearings for the L.A. Times. And I'm Garrett Kennedy. I cover pop music for The Times, and I also wrote a book on NWA, Parental Discretion is Advised, which talked a lot about Suge and his many antics. Garrett, in your book, you play Suge, I felt, in this really interesting continuum of sort of hustlers turned executives and empresarios throughout kind of the history of the music business. Can you kind of give us a sort of a thumbnail of who he is? Like, why is it that it's notable that he finally seems to be like his saga seems to be coming to an end? Well, I think the thing that people forget with Shug is he really, he started this as a really smart businessman. He saw an opportunity. Um, he learned the music industry from being a bodyguard. He was, you know, Bobby Brown's bodyguard right after New Edition. So he started being around a lot of these industry guys. And so once he got acquainted with DLC, who was a songwriter in WA, he was then introduced to Easy and to Ice Cube and to Dr. Dre. And from there, he started to watch and learn the business. And he started to see, okay, this person gets paid this and this person and gets paid that, I want in on some of this. And so the smartest thing to do is like you're friends with DLC and you're running around town with DLC going to clubs and you're seeing that this man is not getting paid for his contributions. So this light bulb clicked and like that's kind of the mode that he was always in from the beginning. So it was that hustler spirit and then greed got in the way and we kind of know what happened next after once greed was introduced to Suge's night. But that's that's always with, with money, how that goes. James, at what point did you kind of begin following Shug's story. I actually came into this a little later because as this trial has gone on, you know, there was a, a three and a half year gap between Suge entering the plea last week and the actual incident that led to the death of Terry Carter way back in 2015. You know, there's been a lot of the false starts with his legal team. He's fired a bunch of his attorneys. I happened to, up until this point, have a semi-decent relationship with one of his two attorneys who is now awaiting trial on witness tampering. So I got brought in because I had the guy's cell phone number and now Marisa stuck with me. <laughs> And Marissa, how how long have you been following Shug's story? So I covered the court side. So I pretty much started in 2015 at, actually, did I go to his arraignment? I think I was at his arraignment and then all the pretrial hearings, which there were, it feels like hundreds, but at least several dozen pretrial hearings leading up to recently when he was on the eve of trial and then took a last minute plea deal. And now setting aside his celebrity and notoriety, 
has his case and the sort of court proceedings around it been unusual? Like for two people who cover the courts and spend a lot of time at the courts, have there been events and things that about his around him that are unusual? Definitely. It's been more of a circus, which you expect that in high profile cases. But this has been interesting. And all of the early cases or early hearings I would describe as kind of a wackiness. I mean, one time deputies rushed up to him with a trash can because he said he felt like he was going to vomit. Another time he just passed out, whacked his head on the table, was rushed to the hospital, just kind of things that you don't usually see in court. And, and as the hearings progressed, he took on a what I described as very cheery tone, always giggling with the judge, really laughing very hard at all the judge's jokes, calling him his only friend, trying out his own one-liners on the judge and seeming quite pleased when, you know, the judge laughed at them. So it seemed it seemed different to me than, than other hearings I've covered. Yeah, I mean, we've seen two journalists subpoenaed trying to make a documentary about Suge because they wanted to talk to him in jail. There's a court order blocking that. So they were almost in legal trouble. Like I said, two of his lawyers have been arrested. Shook's fiance is now going to do three years in jail for allegedly illegally leaking the tape of the killing to TMZ. Um, I've seen Shug yell out fake news about our reporting at one point in court. I mean, the court, I'm not saying covering courts is boring. I'm definitely not saying that with Marisa in striking <laughs> distance of me. But, you know, it, there can be a routine. And that really hasn't happened here. You, We've ended up normal proceedings, pre-conference trials, snooze-inducing dates on the calendar. Something bizarre could happen at any moment in this uh, in this case. You know, you really never knew what was going to happen. And that was before we ever got to an actual murder trial. You know, we're talking about perfunctory court proceedings went way off the rails. I know there was a story from earlier this year in which the judge asked Suge his predictions on an, the NBA playoffs. Is that unusual for a judge to start sort of like conversing with someone, a defendant in a trial? So this is actually a judge. This wasn't the judge on his murder case. He had three pending criminal cases, the murder case, a robbery, and a criminal threats. And that was a judge handling his criminal threats case. And he is kind of a chatty judge, I guess you would say. So it felt strange, obviously, to hear a judge being like, hey, so who do you have for this? But I have heard the judge make small talk with other defendants. That's just kind of his style. But I think for reporters who don't usually cover that, it was very much like, what's going on? Are we just all friends or are we in court or what's happening here? Garrett, can you give us some idea of how we got here? To me, it's very interesting that the ultimate incident for which Suge is going to be going to jail was sort of tangentially related to the movie Straight Out of Compton and that his sort of connection to NWA is really the thing that I think makes him most famous and you can correct me if that's you feel differently what was it that sort of got him to this point that incident in 2015 well it depends on who answers that question i mean there's <laughs> there's the idea of you know it was a setup you know that he was you know told to come here there was going to be some sort of an apology given to him from Dr. Dre. There's there's a couple different stories. There's also the classic Suge story of like, I felt like I'm old money. I felt like this portrayal of me is happening and like I should get some kind of a cut out of this despite the fact that I'm a public figure and like this is sort of the story on record that's been around for 
decades at this point. So that sort of kind of gets a little bit loose in terms of like why he actually ended up showing up, you know, to the the shoot for a commercial attached to the film. So that, I think in, in me, what I what I take away from it is still this idea of these two different things is there's still this attachment to Dre in this way of like this like sense of I still own you because I like got you out of this situation, you know, with the group and then also, you know, with Jerry and with Easy, but then also this other idea of like someone owes me something and I'm going to go take this back at whatever that means or however that means. And so sort of those two things playing with each other and seeing how those stories like had legs for so long, whatever the actual motive of like I'm showing up here to be, I don't even think it's going to ever matter to the idea of like Suge because this is something that we've seen from Suge so many times of I'm showing up to something because I feel I'm owed something. I feel entitled to something. I don't like that this thing has been created and it's sort of in this orbit that I have been in, but like I don't have a part of it in this way. You know, even I'm thinking about, you know, the the reporters getting in trouble working on a documentary, like at some point I'm sure Suge is like getting some some kind of a cut out of this, you know, or something like so even just this idea of like there's always he's always constantly thinking of money. And I think that's always just been to his detriment. I mean, a lot of the things that he's gotten in trouble for over the past 15 years is around money. And that's really sad. Marissa, how does that sort of square with your impressions of him from his appearances in court? I mean, again, it's interesting that you feel that his demeanor sort of lightened over time a little bit. As you've written, it doesn't necessarily square with most his sort of his mythology and the iconography around him is not of this friendly guy. Yeah. And I think, I mean, in talking to his past attorneys and his sister, I mean, obviously people are not just one thing. And, you know, his sister says he's always, his nickname is Suge, it's short for Sugar Bear. He's always been, you know, a friendly guy, at least to some people. But I think, you know, there was that image of him as an enforcer and, to see him in court, it was it was an interesting juxtaposition. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think it was a surprise for some people to see him in court, but probably not to those who who knew him for years. What's a little weird though to me is that Reese has written, you know, wrote a really good story about this last week. This kind of you know those two divergent portraits of Suge, and he did kind of have this almost kind of humble, gentle appearance in court. But that whole specter of Suge Knight, the enforcer, the intimidator. Still kind of hung over the proceedings. You got to remember the surviving victim, Clebone Sloan, you know, he really kind of backed away from testifying against Suge at a preliminary hearing after this first happened. Uh, F. Gary Gray, who's the director of uh, Straight Outta Compton, um, you know, he, there was a separate case where Knight was accused of making threats against him in the lead up to this. He, according to the transcripts we read of this preliminary hearing, he was trying to get out of L.A. and the sheriff's department had to run him down to get him to come back to testify against Suge at a preliminary. And even then... He didn't want to say anything either. There's this idea that even though we've seen this kind of kindler, gentler Suge, for lack of a better term, in court, people were still afraid of of that Suge, of the Suge that we, I guess we all kind of grew up knowing that visage of him as this really scary dude. Some people still buying into that, whether or not it was deserved. Yeah. And I mean, sorry, I just want to add to that because, I mean, he's always been this charismatic person. But something that was really illuminating to me as I was working on the book was, you know, interviewing Michelle A., which for folks who don't know who she is, she's sort of really the woman who invented this like hip hop soul merging. She did that with Dre when he was in, you know, a dance group before NWA. She was signed to Ruthless Records. And then she was 
romantically involved with Dre and then with Suge. So she has kids with the two of them. You know, she's sort of this person who has this really interesting perspective of these two men that we all think of in this one way. And so, you know, as she's telling me about this abuse that she suffered at Dre's hands, I mean, just this absolute violence that she's detailing to me that was like, it's so mind-blowing that a person was going through all of this and it's like the mother, you know, of, of this person's child. And to then say... I'm more afraid of Dre than I was of Suge. It just blew my mind. You know, when you think of what Suge became around, you know, the death row years, and that's when she was involved with, you know, Suge, and then you see this image of this guy always in always in red to rep the bloods, and, like, you know, he's mad that somebody's using the telephone in the studio, so he's beating the out of them, you know, and all these different stories that have happened. And then you see the woman that he's with the entire time is like, yeah, I'd, I'd be with Suge a million times over. It's Dre who actually scares me. So that that really put a lot of things into perspective for me, because I always at a certain point, I was then thinking of the Suge that I was seeing out in the streets and this Suge of like sort of always around violence still and like still involved with like running with certain folks or you're dodging bullets in Hollywood or, you know, whatever the case may be. And to hear this woman who has kids with both of these men and has spent, you know, this time in this intimate relationship to be like, I was more scared of Dre than of this person who, and this is the person who has had a full public rehabbing in a sense versus Suge, who we still see and think of him only one way. Well, tell me a little bit about that mythology of him? Like, where does that image of him come from? Did he cultivate that? I mean, he cultivated that. I mean, obviously, one of the most famous stories is, you know, the Vanilla Ice Shakedown, which is great hip-hop lore of, like, you hanging this guy over this balcony to get all these percentage points and ultimately $4 million is what he ended up getting over for Ice Ice Baby for, you know, this guy that he was managing named Chocolate, which is just the most interesting thing when you think of Vanilla Ice as the rapper than this rapper <laughs> named Chocolate. I mean, it's so perfect, but, like, this idea of, like, him hanging him over this balcony, 20 floors up, just this high drama that, like, Vanilla Ice has some, come around and been like, well, it didn't really actually happen like that. We were just outside and I was just scared because there's all these goons around. So that thing didn't happen, but you still got shook down in this way. But even before that, I mean, people really do forget about the fact that, like, he was really helping a lot of Uptown artists. And Uptown was a label. It was an R&B label. It was where Puff, he sort of cut his teeth. So he was helping Mary J. Blige. He was helping Jodeci. He was helping these artists that we still think of. And we don't ever attach them to Suge. Nobody thinks of Mary J. Blige in the context of Suge. But he was the one who was helping her get better business deals. He was the one that was helping her get more money when she was going on the road. He was helping her leverage in terms of like, I'm going to record this new album. I need a bigger advance. So he was coming from a place of doing good business, but he also was kind of doing it with using his muscle. And I mean, using the fact that he was this big guy and that's easy to scare people. And so, yeah, there is this idea of like, he was always sort of this enforcer and that's something that he played into and it didn't help that you then go to you know, you start a label and it's called Death Row and like just the lore of like all of the bloods and we're all dressed in red. And, you know, I don't like if somebody's done this and I don't, you know, so I'm going to constantly have gangbangers around as we're trying to make music. And your star producer has now gotten to the point where he's so afraid to come to the studio that he's not coming there. And I'll talk to DLC, who I chased the longest for these interviews. And he's just like, it got to the point where I knew in order for me to be around Shook, I had to be high as a kite. I had to be drunk off my rocker because when I'm encountering him, all we're going to be doing doing is inflicting violence on people. That's what that atmosphere was. Everybody needed to be afraid of us. And if they weren't afraid of us, we made them afraid. So if that means you're the security guard and you're not doing what you need to do, I'm going to punch you. 
just to show you that we're the ones that you don't mess with. So just that level of constantly having people be afraid of you is like insane. But then you'll talk to his personal assistant. I did this story a couple of years ago. I think it was when it might have been the beginning of the case, because I'm trying to think of why I would have written this story. But it was basically about how Shook has never been able to get away from this this image and like this personal assistant that worked at death row she's just like i would see him and i would talk to him about all these things that he was a sensitive man at heart but it was a switch and then he was this other person and she's like some of it was an act but also some of it was just like he enjoyed it he enjoyed the attention that he got of knowing that everybody was afraid of him that he could walk into a room and people were going to stop and people were going to be shook actually shook like before we even thought of like that phrase he's actually shook by just his presence so a lot of it was his doing this is what he wanted and unfortunately he never let it go he does never even just this idea of if you think you're going to get an apology or you think you're owed money why did you even feel the need to just i would i'm not going i'm not going i don't really need this relationship to be fixed with this man who we haven't had a relationship in 20 something years like what is it that you're wanting from dre at this point in your life you know, and that's what made me the most sad about just you honestly just showed up just out of greed, out of ego. And now you're going to be in jail the rest of your life. Because in 2015, when this incident happened, where was he kind of at? Like, was he like what what was his sort of position in the music industry or even as just a businessman in 2015 when this hell happened? There was no position. You know, that was the thing is 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 Shug truly hasn't had any real relevance in the music industry since like 98 99. So this whole existence that he had, you can still sort of be an outlier and people know who you are and you can you can still be around. But everything that he became about since the collapse of death row became attached to still attaching yourself to Tupac, still attaching yourself to Snoop, still attaching yourself to Dre, still attaching yourself to Easy. I mean, it makes no sense to me that you're fresh out of jail and you're on the Kimmel show and like you want to talk about how somebody could have just given Easy AIDS from Canito and like you're on national TV after you've been out of jail for all these like he just never let any of it go. He never let any of it go. You talk to Michelle and she's just he wasn't trying to be a better father because he wasn't around. He was still out chasing and chasing who he could align himself with, how he can restart this up. I mean, they have tried other versions of Death Row after it collapsed. And it just it was over once Snoop was like, I'm out. It just was done. And he just never let it go. So then it became, well, I can strong arm people to have you around. And so then it's like you're saddled up with like Chris Brown. It just became such a disaster for him to just be like rolling around this industry that doesn't respect him. He's been a joke for so many years. You have no level of influence. You have nothing. So that's why a lot of the coverage, frankly, has been quiet because people don't care anymore. People stopped caring a long time ago. You've spent the 15 plus years in the public spotlight is a troublemaker. And like eventually you're going to get in for real trouble that then you can't come back from. And that's where he is. So, I mean, that legacy, it just, there isn't one. I mean, I think the things that's unfortunate is he was a part of an era in hip hop that's so important, that's never going to not be important or influential. But the more he did, he just kept diminishing his own importance because at a certain point people learn to be actual businessmen where we don't have time there's like there's we're, we have issues with this contract we're not going to show up with crowbars no one's doing that anymore like that's just not happening you know all these guys have gotten really 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 smart and so that era of you can just strong arm and just push people into whatever just doesn't really exist in hip-hop anymore these guys are really about making actual money and how can we actually have real deals how can we actually get real endorsements how can we actually do things that's going to elevate 
elevate us to another place. Leading with violence doesn't work. And, you know, there are some rappers, I'm not going to name their names on this platform, that are still trying to do that, even though they're in the spotlight where they don't have to. But some of it just does go back to hood mentality. And so that's sort of the reason why I was always understanding of where Suge was coming from, because it's hard to shake the hood. It just really is. And for some people, you just are never able to. Other folks turn it into something really beautiful and they can make it this whole thing. And they don't ever look back, but they also don't ever go back or do anything. But like Suge just, he just couldn't. And now how much of this comes through in his court proceedings? I mean, especially someone like Suge that has this long list of incidents, both, you know, in the courts and out of the courts, in the course, over these court proceedings, how much of his legacy and mythology even becomes a, a part of it? Like, is, is are these the things that are ever talked about, like, in court? There was definitely early on in the case, prosecutors filed a, a bail motion. They were asking, I don't remember how much it was at the time, I think $25 million. And they laid out, I mean, it was hundreds of pages, and they laid out all the past charges, past allegations that hadn't actually led to charges. So you had the 99, the 1992 assault where he pistol whipped a guy in a Hollywood studio. I mean, all of his probation violations in Vegas and and in L.A. And the prosecutor did mention it during that hearing. So they, that certainly loomed over the case throughout. It didn't really come up at a lot of hearings, but prosecutors called him an unrepentant criminal in that filing. So they definitely were saying, hey, we're charging him on this attempted murder now, but hey, look at all these past things that we think he basically got away with. And I think there was definitely a bit of an attempt to tie him back into the, you know, because I mean, street gangs still exist in LA, but not to the force they did in the 90s, whereas... You had a couple of times, this is probably more the criminal threats case than the murder, but the sheriff's department kept reading these transcripts of text messages that he allegedly sent to F. Gary Gray, where he'd identify himself as being from Bompton because he's dropping the C out of Compton. You know, they were very much wanted you to know, you know, he's a Pyru blood and he is a like 1990s Pyru blood. They wanted you to think of, I mean, there's a difference. I would there's think such that, a big difference like, between mentally, the 1990s Pyru. The, yeah, it, there's such a difference. Uh, I mean, I'm, I, it's just in like to any, a, a random person is going to think of the 90s, that kind of world versus now. They're going to think of a much more dangerous, much angrier time. So I definitely think there was an attempt. I'll leave that up to the listener to decide if that's a fair thing of the prosecution or sheriff's department to do. But they were just kind of like, this dude is an active gang member, and he was an active gang member when that really scared the hell out of you. So, And so the specifics of these proceedings that had to do with the 2015 incident that led to the death of Terry Carter, like what were the kind of the day-to-day specifics of the proceedings? So most of the proceedings are just what's called pre-trial hearings, and they basically come in and say like, hey, I don't have all the evidence yet. And then the prosecutor's like, oh, I'll turn it over. Like James mentioned earlier, it wasn't quite as boring as they would usually be. I mean, you had a bit more drama from Suge, and then basically every other hearing he was firing an attorney and bringing in someone new. So that took up a lot of time. And then there was, you know, some discussions over as they got closer to the trial, which never ended up happening, discussions of witnesses and who might testify. A lot of things, pretty much this whole case file is under seal, so we could never really figure out a lot of those things. But we did hear them starting to prepare for the trial that now won't ever happen. And did you expect that it would come to trial or were you surprised when they went to a a plea? I did think it would go to trial. Yeah. I mean, last minute pleas do happen um, and there is some strategy to it, but they had already started calling hundreds of jurors. I think it was four days before the trial was was set to happen. So yeah, I was definitely surprised. 
And now, maybe it's funny to put it this way, what are your feelings about that? Like, just as a person at work, like, were you looking forward to covering that trial? Like, I mean, I definitely planned my life around that trial for three years. Um, but, I mean, both ways. I'm, I'm, in a way, happy to have it over with. It would have been interesting. I mean, I think the public would have learned a lot more, maybe about 2015, Hit and Run, and other some other peripheral characters if we had gone to trial. So just as a member of the public and someone that wants to tell the public what's going on, that's a factor. But yeah, yeah, it was a surprise. But she's also being humble because she gets front row seats to the Robert Durst show in about a month. So she's not she's not that disappointed. <laughs> As Garrick was saying, I'm kind of interested in maybe what this means, like for the the saga of Marion Shugnight, where this recent events kind of put him and as you were saying is this kind of the is this the end of his of his story i think this could well be the last public chapter of his life you know shug is 53 now he'll likely get sentenced this week to 28 years behind bars so i mean california he probably won't serve all of those 28 years but um it was a, a violent crime so so much many of them he'll likely serve and he's had a lot of health problems so i think you know we might hear stories from inside some state prison but i don't think that it's it's very possible we won't hear more stories from him out as a free man. Uh, there, I mean, there is a little potential of some ancillary information coming forward, but it won't be involving him. Like I've mentioned before, two of his 275 defense attorneys, <laughs> however many he had in the past three years, they are still awaiting trial on charges that they might have tampered with witnesses, might have suborned perjury. Uh, one of those attorneys was also arrested the day before we recorded this podcast on bank fraud charges. So they're are people in his orbit that are facing criminal proceedings and you never know, you know, what might happen during those that might give you a little more information on this whole scenario. But yeah, beyond that, I guess it's kind of case closed. Because, Garrick, is it overstating things or maybe reaching to try to narrativize his story to see this as some grand Shakespearean rise and fall? Like if you're trying to sort of like make sense of Suge's story, what do you take away from it? I think what makes that tough to try to do is everyone in his orbit that mattered and that he was connected with had moved on so long ago, so very long ago from him. I mean, even just this, yeah, this idea of like, there's a great irony of this is happening as we're preparing for this film about NWA, which of course he's closely related to, but even, even his portrayal in that film was not embellished. Like they literally only showed things that have actually happened on record. And yeah, there was mo moments of that movie that were greatly embellished, but like all of that was there. All of that had actually happened. So there wasn't this thing of you were portrayed negatively. It just was the truth of who you were then. But I agree with, you know, James and, um, you know, Maurice here that I, I the story is kind of over. I don't think that there's going to be that much interest of his day-to-day -day in jail. I think we're far more intrigued of, well, how's Bill Cosby going to handle, handle jail? But not this guy who has spent all these years essentially just terrorizing people because he just had power and he finally got what he deserved, you know, after killing a person. You know, I was like, I just don't, I mean, that's what makes it hard to, like, I don't think there's much room for people to care anymore about that particular side of it. You know, I think now it's sort of this thing of, do you spend time in jail writing a book? I mean, I'd, I'd want to read that book from Suge, I for sure, but I don't want much more from him. Like, I don't really want to hear what what's happening to him in jail. Is he, like, correlate, you know, is he getting people to, like, have, like, a gang inside you? Like, I mean, okay, well, actually, I'm lying. I actually am curious. <laughs> because I do feel like you're in jail and Suge shows up. You got to be down for Suge, or, you know, because you're kind of nervous. You know what I mean? But, like, what if you're the guy who's already been in jail and you've already got this whole unit? Do you let Suge in? Is Suge now going to be, like, 
you know, having stock in cigarettes and stuff? What's that going to be? I mean, but yeah, overall, I think in terms of what that's going to be in the actual music industry, I just, I think it's over. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen with this documentary, you know, and, and is that, James, is that the one that BT this is the death row, the, slash the death row Showtime? Okay, yeah. yeah. Because yeah, BT had done one and it was strange, but I know that there was one in the works with Showtime. And so I don't know. And this was before there was any trouble. He was doing this documentary. Yeah. I'm not familiar with the Showtime one. The, the one BET did that I guess came out earlier this year. Yeah. That was the one that he had been using another inmate's phone privileges to call out and talk to these two documentarians. Mm. That's what eventually got, you know, his fiance was accused of facilitating that. That's eventually got her back in jail. But yeah, I don't know about this other one. I don't know about the show. Yeah, there's there's a showtime when I was announced, you know, years before, you know, you had any issues, which would have been really interesting because there are parts of Suge's life that's still really fascinating. You know, how somebody learned this industry. I mean, it is such a classic rags to riches story that like hip hop is built on, which, you know, that doesn't go away. But I just think it's somebody who you built it. And then you got greedy, and then that greed led to some really poor choices that you made. So if he actually really wanted to, there's no one in the industry that he could true of, of, not that there's nobody, there's no one of importance and no one of influence that he could reach out to for help. Like, it's just, you're in jail. And if you're really looking for that tragic angle, it's like Garrick has said, it's a fair, maybe a fair description of Shug is that he couldn't shake the street, he couldn't shake that part of Compton. His last public act, he killed somebody who did. Like, yeah. Terry Carter grew up on Piru Street. I spent a decent amount of time with his family. I'm writing a story about this now. You know, he grew up there. He got his family out, and he never, even when they had fiscal troubles, he never wanted his family to move back there, at least to that section of Compton. You know, we know parts of Compton have been on the come up for a while now. The city's not what it once was. But, you know, Terry was kind of seen as this guy who helped lift people out of bad situations, gave people jobs, and he dies in a Compton parking lot in a dispute he had nothing to do with. So if you're looking for that kind of narrative through line, maybe that's kind of what it is. It's not... It's not what Shug did. It's what it cost somebody else. And that seems like a really powerful place for us to wrap this up. And so we will conclude our conversation on the rise and fall of Marion Shug Knight. For LA Times Studios and The Real, thanks for listening.